topic for this evening is Albert Einstein. Albert Einstein. Now, before we discuss uh, Albert Einstein from a perspective of Jewish history, I want to just go over his career path, professional career, and then his personal life, and show you how from the professional career and the personal life, there's almost no, almost no indication that the man is a Jew, other than one key moment in 1932-33. Uh, and then, after going through the secular character of his life, we'll address matters of his concern for Jewish affairs, in particular Zionism. Okay. Albert Einstein is born in Ulm, in uh, Württemberg, in 1879, to a secular, assimilated Jewish family, and little uh, or no religion in his life in the early years goes to school. <coughs> At first he was thought of as a dummy yeah. because he didn't speak well uh, early on in life and he was sort of out of it. He was aloof. He uh, was far from certain that he would be a, a prodigy or a, a genius of any kind. He was bad at math at first, yeah. In His father owned an electric uh, supply company which was a new thing in the 1880s, and they used uh, direct current, DC, as opposed to AC, alternating current. And the family moved to Munich, and in 1894, the family had to leave Munich because the business failed. The Einstein uh, company could not wi did not win the bidding war to supply the city of Munich with electric power because it couldn't transition from DC to AC. So the business failed. The family moved to Italy, uh, to Milan. But Einstein Albert didn't really want to go to Italy, and he ended up in Switzerland. He went to school in Switzerland, graduating high school in 1896, and then went on to the Swiss Polytechnic Institute for college, where he would do his undergraduate studies and graduate in the year 1900, and then go on to the University of Zurich, where he'd get his Ph.D. in physics in 1905. Um, well, huh? When you're smart, you get you know scholarships. <laughs> things, these things happen. No, no, he was uh, sought after, yeah, because he was already known by the age of seventeen as being a, a, a genius when it came to physics. Even though he's a Jew. Even though, yeah, well, even though the, the Jews were the best at physics, mm -hmm. there was hardly a Gentile in the field. Really? I, I'm exaggerating a little bit, but only a little bit. Really. Um, now, in, in 1906, he has his Annus his miracle year, where he publishes four papers that were um, unbelievable, that were revolutionary in the field, and elevated him to a status of uh, the best of the best. Where is he working? So he had difficulty getting an academic appointment, in part, maybe because of his Jewish identity, but maybe not. Maybe it's just he had difficulty getting an appointment. He works in the Swiss Patent Office in Bern from 1901 uh, for the next five years. Then in 1908, he gets a job teaching at the University of Bern. Then in 1909... Yes, because he was assessing the validity of new inventions that involved scientific development, scientific advancement. 
So he's, he's teaching in Bern in 1908, then in 1909 he goes back to his alma mater, University of Zurich. In 1911 he goes to Charles University in Prague. 1912 he goes back for a more elevated professorship in Zurich. And in 1914 he's invited to Berlin. What will he do there? So he is part of the Prussian Academy of Sciences and the Humboldt University of Berlin and the Kaiser Wilhelm Institute uh, for uh, for physical sciences. And he's even the head of the president of the German Physical Society from 1916 to 1918. So he has a very lofty position or multiple positions in Berlin in the scientific community of Germany. Well, it, it does a little bit, but not yet in, a major, in any major way. Uh, in the 1920s, he travels the world. Uh, especially after he wins his Nobel Prize in 1921 for the photoelectric effect. He travels to the Far East, to Japan. He travels, we'll see, to Palestine and uh, random spots all around the world. In the late 1920s, actually 19, starting in 1930, he makes trips to the United States to teach at Caltech. He had three summer uh, professorships at Caltech. In late 1932, he... He does speak English. Not not well, but he but he with an accent. But yes. But he overcame his inability to speak. Yes, yes. Uh, I mean, his, his English was by the end of his life, his English was perfectly fine. He's fluent. I mean, he, was, he spent the last two, two decades of his life in America. Um, so he goes to Caltech, and the Nazis take over in January January thirtieth, nineteen thirty three. He doesn't want to go home. He's not welcome home. There's a bounty for his head as a pr- most prominent Jew in Germany. So uh, he better not go back to Germany. He'll be killed if he goes back. So what does he do? He has a few choices. Many institutions of higher learning are interested in his services. He goes back to Europe, to London, uh, temporarily in the summer of 1933, and has to choose between <coughs> Oxford, uh, Yale and Princeton, and he ends up choosing Princeton, the, the, the Institute for Advanced Studies at Princeton, where he stays from 1933 until his death in 1955. And that is his career in a nutshell, his major accomplishment, or major involvement in public life and during his Princeton years was the famous letter that he wrote together with Leo Zillard to uh, President Roosevelt encouraging the development of uh, atomic, potentially atomic weapons, that the, the, uh, the science of nuclear technology could lead to some great weapon, uh, which would five years later. There was a question over here somewhere. You didn't mention the Manhattan Project. Well, he's not involved in the Manhattan Project. He... But not, no, he, he, he writes a letter to the president which leads to maybe the president being more interested <laughs> out of fear that the Germans will be ahead of the Americans in this area of armament, uh, but he's not an Oppenheimer, is the head of the, of the Manhattan Project, and Einstein is just in New Jersey uh, hanging out at Princeton. He's not going to the desert, to Arizona, or to New Mexico. No, no. Okay, so let's talk about his family life. So the, in the professional life, what was Jewish about his professional life? 
just the fact that because he was a Jew, he couldn't go back in 1933 to Germany, and it ended up uh, affecting the trajectory of his uh, career in terms of his residence, his uh, where, you know what university he would attach himself to, and he ends up at Princeton. So Nazi anti-Semitism is America's gain. America gets Einstein, Princeton gets Einstein because of uh, Nazi anti-Semitism. What about personal life? So. In 1901, he meets Maliva Marek, a Serbian uh, physics student at University of Zurich, a classmate of his. And they like each other. And they're going to get married eventually. Jewish? No, Serbian. Not a Jew. Uh, in 1903, they get married. And in 1904, they have a son, Hans. And in 1910, they have a son, Al, uh, Edward. But, unbeknownst to most of the people involved in their lives at the time, they also had a daughter in 1902. Remember, they got married in 1903. Right. Huh. So, Liesel was born in 1902, and we don't hear from her again. She either was put up for adoption or died, but we're not really sure. Uh, it's unclear what happened to her. And all this came out in hindsight later. Um, the family is obviously not much of a Jewish family. Serbian mother, Gentile children, Einstein himself is not interested in uh, personal religiosity. But he would marry a Jewish woman, eventually. In 1913, the marriage kind of falls apart. And Albert uh, strikes up a romance with his cousin, Elsa. Elsa was his first cousin on his father's side and his second cousin on his mother's side. So it's like a double relationship here. And officially, he, uh, he divorces Maliva Marek in 1919 and marries Elsa Lowenthal Einstein uh, a few weeks later. And they remain married until her death in 1936. And then he was uh, a widower the last uh, 19 years of his life. Okay, so... Not, not too much Jewish about his personal life. Any children? No. She had a daughter, Margot, from a previous marriage that Einstein helped to raise, but they didn't have any children. They were already older at that point. Okay. Now let's go to the part that we really care about, his Jewish involvement. So, by his own admission, Albert Einstein said that he didn't feel the effects of being a Jew until he arrived in Germany in 1914, which means that his professional uh, advancement between 1908 and 1914 at various Central European universities uh, was, in his eyes, you know, a success that was re reasonably uh, warranted by virtue of his credentials, and that his Jewishness didn't seem to get in the way. But he arrives in Berlin to a fairly prestigious position, but he experiences, if not personally, then at least in the atmosphere, an environment where it's not good to be a Jew. It's not good to be a Jew. It's 1914. 1914. So this only gets worse four years later at the end of World War I. How does it manifest? Yeah, any examples? So in his writings, he doesn't really say how it's manifest. But we could just guess that on the street, you know, passing remarks, dirty Jew, spitting, I, I mean... It doesn't matter. He looked it. He looked it. He looked it. You know, pe pe people don't have to wear obviously Jewish garb in 
you know, the, the first three or four decades of the 20th century in Germany to experience unpleasantness from that side of the political aisle that was, you know, uh, clearly anti-Semitic and were willing to act on it. Didn't they have quotas in the universities at that point? Sure. Pre-World War I? Uh, Pre-World War One, yes. Post-World War One in Germany, no. Not in, not in Weimar, but pre, yeah. Um, so, at the end of the war, the experience that the Jews have in the early phases of Weimar are the accusation that the Jews stabbed the German people in the back and that the loss in the war was not because of true military defeat but because of some internal foe, some enemy within that did in the German uh, war effort. And who was that enemy within? The Jews. This is the reason why Walter Rattenau, the foreign minister of Germany, is assassinated in 1922. So it's not a, a very fun time uh, to be a Jew in what Germany. Huh? It doesn't matter. It could be nothing. Well, no, the truth of the matter is that war propaganda, not even profiteering, propaganda, there was a, there were, uh, there was a belief spread throughout the German uh, civilian population in 1917-1918 that the war wasn't going badly and that despite the American entry into the war, Germany was still going to win, and that, uh, after all, the lines had not crossed into German territory. It would, they were, the fighting was still going on on someone else's soil. So therefore, how do you go from that psychological state and real military state of affairs to signing a treaty of surrender not that long afterward? What must have happened? Someone must have messed it up, not on the battlefield, but in the politics and in the diplomacy. And who was it? The Jews. Okay, so Einstein doesn't like the way that the Ostjuden are being um, scapegoated as as the source of all social problems in Germany. And this was really happening. How many Ostjuden were there? So it's hard to to measure that because it's also hard to define what the Ostjuden really are. I mean, in theory, it's anyone who was who was born east of Germany, whether in the Tsarist Empire, uh, what, what became Poland, what became you know the Latvian countries. So anyone born there who moves at some point in time to the to the German Empire is one of the Ostjuden. But yet, you could have someone who was born in Russia, Russia Poland, who came thirty years earlier, who speaks a fluent German, who no longer wears a yarmulke and a streimel or whatever, and just blends in and wears a Western clothing and has has clean shaven. And how would you even know where they came from? After all, many of the so-called German Jews, in fact, were people who had you know, uh, Eastern roots from 100 years before. It's a very arbitrary distinction between the German, the, the real Yekka, and the Ostjuden. It's, I mean, it, when, it's, when it's blatant, when a person looks like they come from the old world, yes, you notice it, but it's not always so obvious. Moreover, what Einstein's point was, is that Jews can very easily acculturate. And they did in the Central European countries, like his family. (coughs) And so why attack the Russian Jew who lives in Berlin or lives in Munich uh, just because they're a recent arrival and their cultural uh, proclivities are not exactly like ours? They're going to be like ours before you know it. And there's great potential in them, you know, great brilliant minds that could emerge from the Ostjuden who are living in Germany. And many of the greats of of 20th century Jewish life fall into that category. You know, the likes of Chaim Weizmann, who's, an, who's a Russian Jew, comes to Switzerland and gets an education. Many, many Jews went from Russia to Central Europe and advanced themselves culturally and became great uh, public figures. 
So he, he, he sees that German anti-Semitism is looking for a scapegoat and is attacking the Jews generally, in particular the ones who look very Jewish. In 1921, Chaim Weizmann tapped, uh, taps Kurt Blumenfeld, the Zionist propaganda minister, to stir up uh, the feelings, the Jewish feelings of Albert Einstein on behalf of Zionism. Now, it was an opportune moment for a Zionist functionary to go to Einstein in the hopes of getting support. Why? Because right around that time, as he was getting his Nobel Prize, the theory of relativity was yet to be fully accepted. Remember, the, the, the Nobel Prize was not for the theory of relativity. It was for photoelectric effect. And relativity, although it was mentioned in the Nobel citation, was mentioned only as a rule, but not as a theory, as an accepted theory. And there was an anti-relativity movement going on in Germany that was not based upon real intellectualism, but it was just like the, uh, the anti-Dreyfusards of France 25 years earlier. It was just the vicious anti-Semites who pick on a public Jew, a prominent Jew, and attack whatever their accomplishment is. So anti-relativity was a, a pseudo-scientific uh, garb around just really vitriolic anti-Semitism. And Einstein knows it, and so he's feeling very Jewish at this point, because his great success in, in the world of science is being undermined by opponents of his Jewish identity. Okay, so Blumenfeld goes to Einstein and says, we want your support. For what? Not for Zionism generally, which might not have been forthcoming, but for the Hebrew University. Hebrew University, which was established in 1918 with a, with a uh, groundbreaking ceremony, with a cornerstone uh, on Har Sofim, uh, uh, and would not actually come into real existence until 1925 at an at a inaugural ceremony featuring uh, Rav Cook and uh, Chief Rabbi Hertz and Herbert Samuel, all the, the, the heavy hitters of the, of the mandate. So this is the in-between phase where the, the university exists on paper but not in real life. And what does it need? It needs money. It needs financial backing of Western Jewry. So it happened to be that Einstein was going to America in 1921. So Blumenfeld convinced him to spend some of his time uh, advocating on behalf of Hebrew University among the wealthy potential donors in the American Jewish community. And Einstein agreed. Um, but Blumenfeld told Weizmann, Weizmann who went on the trip to America with, with Einstein, Blumenfeld told him, don't let Einstein speak off the cuff, because he's not a real Zionist and we don't know what he'll say. So basically use him for his name, for his uh, uh, popular appeal, but don't let him say anything that hasn't been pre-approved. Uh, and Einstein was fully aware of this. He understood that he was being used for his name, and not that they really needed him for any particular talent of his. It was just an issue of celebrity. Huh? Is that why they didn't accept the presidency? So why he didn't accept the presidency, there'll be many reasons why he didn't. That is one of them. It would just be an issue of fame and not that he really fit the job. Okay. That wasn't the only presidency in his life that came his way, or almost came his way. He was offered the presidency of Israel. And that's what I'm talking about, the presidency of Israel. Yeah, yeah. No, 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 he was never offered that. Never, never. No. He was offered presidency of Israel. Okay. So... Um, Einstein would mock those German Jews who identified themselves as Germans of the Mosaic faith. 
Germans of the Mosaic faith is an expression that had been around already a hundred years by his time, that had been adopted by some of the early reformers who didn't like the word Jew. That Jew was somehow a dirty word, and, and Mosaic, Moses, and faith, well, faith is good. People like religion. Religion is nice. And Moses is the hero of the Old Testament, of the Hebrew Bible. So how could you go wrong with that? But he said it was a, a farce, an absolute farce. Because the people who were identifying themselves as members of the Mosaic faith, as opposed to a Jew, were the least likely people to have any faith whatsoever. In other words, these are real uh, non-believers. What kind of faith? There's no faith, not Moses, not nothing. There's no faith. It's just a way of getting around the term Jew. And he didn't like that. He became uh, a firm believer in identifying with the Jewish nationality and he believed in a responsibility that one has towards one's kinsmen, one's racial kinsmen. Now notice the word racial because as a product of Central Europe of the time, he believed in racial theory, at least before the Holocaust. Now, not in a, in a racial theory that says, I should be antagonistic to those who are beneath me. No one is beneath him. He's, a, a, he, he's anti-chauvinism and anti-bigotry, but he has a certain racial theory to, uh, to his uh, system of thought. And you have to be loyal to your kinsmen, to the Jews of the world. And if they're suffering, you have to be concerned about it. Okay. Um, It is, but b- bearing in mind that he experienced uh, the hostility of the, uh, the German anti-Semites, so it, it dawns upon him that just like I am a victim of you know, a benign form of anti-Semitism, so too my kinsmen further to the east could be victims of something a lot worse. Uh, and that's the, the solidarity, solidarity that he believes in. So he doesn't like narrow and evil nationalism, and he's basically in favor of uh, you know, world unity, human unity. But in a world where there is nationalism, and it's such a horrible force for bad, the one nationalism that's good is Jewish nationalism. Why? Why does he make an exception for his own group? Because since the Jews are powerless, having no state of their own, and forming a majority in no area on earth, Therefore, they're not in a position to exercise, uh, by brute force, some nastiness towards others. That Jewish nationalism is only going to be a happy thing, a positive thing, uh, that will allow Jews to uh, emerge from their era of exile and once again have a flowering of cultural life somewhere on earth, be it Palestine or wherever, and it's not going to in any way negatively affect some other group. Of course, it will. Which other group? The Arabs. And we'll have to get to that. How does his Zionism evolve over time once he realizes the Arab question is an important question? Okay. So he visits Palestine only once in his life. Only one time. In 1923, on his tour of the whole world, on his way back from Japan, he, um, he visits Palestine for 12 days. What does he see there? He sees tremendous progress. He likes what he sees. He's very, very impressed with Tel Aviv, which at that time is only about 14 years old as a city. He's not so interested in Jerusalem and the old relics of the past. That doesn't interest him at all, really. He's interested in the success of the kibbutzim, 
because he's a little bit of a collectivist. He once referred to himself as a communist, but he's not. He was a socialist. He once said to, to someone, they don't like me because I'm a communist and a Jew, to which his interlocutor responded, your, your politics are not red, they're pink. So you're not, you're not really much of a communist. And then, they, and, then, and then the guy added, and you're not much of a Jew either. <laughs> so that was uh, what, what interested Einstein. So he liked the collectivism, he liked the city of Tel Aviv. He thought that there was tremendous opportunity for the, building, the, the, the practical building up of Eretz Yisrael. Okay? What did he want the university to accomplish? So he wasn't interested, in fact, what happened first was the study, uh, uh, the Institute for Jewish Studies under Gershom Shalom and the, the figures of Madai Yahadut. That was the early kernel of Hebrew University. He, he was interested in a medical faculty and a faculty of sciences, thinking that a faculty of sciences could help result in technological um, discoveries that would uh, enable the yeshuv to overcome some of the, the, the obstacles, whether it be disease like malaria, or infestation, or the draining of swamps, whatever it might be, whatever engineering and scientific uh, difficulties there are, Hebrew University could provide solutions to all those problems. Okay. Um, Einstein was wrong about one very important point. And as the era of the British mandate would uh, progress he consistently made the following mistake. He believed that the citizenry of Palestine, Jew and Arab alike, could get along and accomplish the building up of the infrastructure of Palestine and developing civil society. And it was only the politicians and their nefarious ideologies on both sides, Jewish nationalism, you know, st- strong political Zionism, and Arab nationalism, that interfered with the peaceful reconciliation of, t- of two cultures. Why was he wrong about that? So he was wrong simply because your average person thought along the same lines as the politicians. It's not that the politicians were ruining an otherwise peaceful uh, situation. It's that people who came to Palestine, if they were a Jew, were looking to build up the Yishuv in the hopes of an eventual Jewish state, and a Jewish state which was going to exercise sovereignty over the historic homeland and have a really Jewish flavor to it. Whether secular or religious, the point is it was going to have a Hebrew and Jewish flavor to it. And the Arabs, once they were stirred to national sentiment were vehemently anti-Jewish by religious inclination and just by ethnic bigotry. And so it wasn't the politicians alone who were going to put a stop or try to put a stop to the success of Zionism and the, the infiltration of Jewish population into what they thought was their country. Einstein never understood that. He thought it's just a bunch of people living in a, in a land and the politicians are ruining it. No, he was simply wrong. Okay. Yes. Right. Correct. He he lived in a world of VIPs, and in the world of VIPs, people are reluctant to express uh, really strong political sentiment that is aggressively in favor of oneself. 
You always want to be extra magnanimous. The problem is we don't live in a world where the average person is that way. We live in a world where the average person is protecting their own interest, and their own interest is in conflict with somebody else's, especially two nations living in one plot of land. And so he was simply off base. Okay. The, the riots of 1929... Did you say that he would have been allied with Yes, okay, so he, he does a- uh, align himself in the 1940s uh, with Ihud, which is the, uh, the, the group that, that favors unity of two national groups, binational state. Now, the truth of the matter is he was a little bit different from the binationalist, and when we get to, in about 20 minutes, we'll discuss how he differed from the binationalists, but Judah Magnus, Henrietta Zold, Hugo Bergman, Martin Buber are some of the major figures. To some extent, yes, cultural Zionism. Yeah. But when it came to politics, they all favored a Jewish Arab binational state, and they felt that any attempt at partition. A, a ge- geographic partition of Palestine into a separate Jewish and Arab state would have been a, a tragedy, and certainly the imposition of Jewish rule over a, the totality of Palestine, given an Arab demographic majority, would have been a shanda, would have been apartheid. Okay, so he is along those lines, but I'll I'll point out how he differs from them a little bit. Okay. Um, Yes, they're fully aware of that. They're fully aware of that. Yes. And they didn't care. No. So it would be one state with not a particular Jewish flavor to it in the end. Maybe it would have some Jewish flavor, but it wouldn't have a Jewish demographic majority and therefore would not do the sorts of things that Israel, the state of Israel, has done post-1948 for world Jewry. And they didn't care about it. Well, they don't foresee what's going to happen. Okay. Okay. Now, the, the riots of 1929 and the long... Uh, Arab uprising of 1936 to 1939, changed the attitude of many Jews towards Zionism and political Zionism. In what way? Well, some people who were, by inclination, cultural Zionists and reluctant to openly call for a Jewish state or you know, Jewish sovereignty in Eretz Israel, changed their tune once they saw the violent nature of the opposition of the Arab side and realize that only by some uh, force of arms and military strength are you going to be able to preserve the Yishuv. And that's only going to happen under Jewish statehood. But not Albert Einstein. Einstein sees the riots as a failure of British policy, and he believes firmly that British colonial policy in Palestine is akin to British colonial policy in other parts of the British Empire where they're pitting the, the various ethnic constituencies against themselves for the sake of uh, colonial uh, uh, British power, the, 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 the long-term maintenance of British colonial power. Now, you could argue that, and maybe there's some truth to it. There's plenty of truth to that in other parts of the world, and maybe even in Palestine. But, but for a Jew who's supposedly a professed Zionist, not to ascribe primary blame regarding the Arab riots to the Arabs, was not well received in Jewish circles. Uh, you know, when, when Jews are being thrown into the matzah ovens in Hebron in 1929, or being stabbed in the back in 1936 along the coastal plain, you want to have 
solidarity on the part of Western Jewish VIPs who are supposedly Zionist. You don't want to have this sort of even-handed approach of, well, there's blame here and there's blame there. Okay, unfortunately, in every general, we have you know, that sort of thing, even to the Ariyom Okay. Okay. Um, For Einstein, what is Judaism? What is the essential nature of Judaism? He believed it was social justice and intellectualism. Social justice and intellectualism. Whether, whether he has any basis in the traditional sources for that, who knows, who cares. That's what he thinks Judaism is. And that's why he supports the kind of Zionism that does not aggressively pursue a Jewish demographic majority in Palestine at the expense of the poor Arabs. And it's why his main uh, institution that he favors is the university, the Hebrew University. He wants a kindly and gentle Zionism that's all about learning. And yes, uh, material progress in, uh, in, in the Yishuv. But he has no time for religion old-fashioned religion. He's totally against the Orthodox clerics. And just one little story, we, we discussed Kaplan a few weeks ago. Remember I said how they burned Kaplan's sitter, they put him to Cherem in 1945? So um, he actually had a correspondence with Kaplan that year and told him, don't worry what the, 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 the long-bearded old caftan-wearing rabbis have to say. The world has passed them by. That's what, that was his, his remark, to give chizuk to Mordechai Kaplan in the face of the Cherem put against him by the Agudas Rabbanim. Okay. Um, in 1946, on January 11th, Einstein testified before the Anglo-American Committee. What is the Anglo-American Committee? So, a little bit of background. There were many committees that were formed to solve the Palestine problem over the years of the mandate. And typically those committees came up with some kind of far-fetched solution that doesn't solve the problem and could never be implemented. Uh, in 19, the 1930s, you had the Peel Commission, was the most famous in 1937, which recommended partition, but was much uh, more favorably towards the Arabs than to the, to the Jews. The Jews were going to get a tiny sliver of Eretz Israel, and it was rejected by the Arabs, and was basically rejected by the Jews too. After the war, the situation is that most of the Jews of Europe are dead, and those who survived have nowhere to go. They're stuck in DP camps. They're waiting to get into Western countries, and some of them eventually will. But many of them don't want to go to Western countries. They want to go to Palestine. They want to go to Eretz Israel. But the White Paper of 1939 had called for 75,000 Jews to be admitted, 15,000 a year for five years, 39 to 44. And then after that, only with Arab consent. But of course, is there Arab consent? No. So there's no more immigration. Basic, basically, no more Jewish legal immigration after the war. There's Ali Abet, there's illegal immigration, uh, which is running a brisk business uh, by the Haganah and other underground groups. But what about massive numbers? So a plan was put forth to allow 100,000 Jews to immediately enter Palestine. Ernest Bevan is opposed to it. Ernest Bevan is the British foreign minister. And uh, beneath his abrasive exterior, there lay an equally abrasive interior, to quote Abba Ibn. Uh, and uh, who famously threw a rock through the window of Ernest Bevan's limousine when he visited New York? Meyer Kahana, a young teenage Meyer Kahana. Okay, so before he was famous, he was throwing rocks at Ernest Bevan. Um, so this this proposal 
is obviously rejected by the Arabs and is rejected by the British. So they form a committee, an Anglo-American committee, to listen to ideas about what should happen in Palestine. And they ask Albert Einstein to testify, which from a Jewish point of view might not be such a good thing, because uh, Einstein's Zionism is very wishy-washy. However, however, when it came to immigration, this was the one point where he was, a, where, where he was strong. He believed in unfettered Jewish immigration <laughs> to Palestine because he believed... And I, I don't know, I'm not an economist, I don't know whether this is, uh, this is a reasonable statement or not. He believed that uh, immigration of Jews to Palestine had historically been good for the Arabs, that, the, that wages rose, and the number of Arabs living in the country rose dramatically together with Jewish immigration because of the buildup of the infrastructure of the country. And therefore, if another 100,000 Jews move in... Yes, the Arabs might not like it because of political considerations, but from a purely economic point of view, enlightened self-interest, they should be in favor of it. So thought Einstein. Therefore, from his social justice perspective, he doesn't oppose large-scale Jewish immigration. He favors it. Okay, that's his one good point going for him. And there is some truth to that in terms of the 1880s and 1890s when Jewish immigration was coming in and settling Yeah. Right, they came from Syria. They came from Syria and Lebanon. Right, Lebanon yeah. Because there were jobs, jobs available. Correct, so correct. It's not. It's 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 a it's a it's a reasonable statement. It's just that if you think about it, most people are not very uh, aware of macroeconomic factors. Most people only concern themselves with their ideology, their religion, their partisan cause. And so even if it's better for you know, the wage scale of an Arab in Haifa for another 100,000 Eastern European Jews to move to Palestine, they don't see it that way. Einstein sees it that way from a jo- social justice perspective, but his Arab friend doesn't actually see it that way. Okay, so in the course of the discussions, Einstein was attacking the British mandate as being totally uh, incompetent <laughs> and that it needed to be replaced. And he wants it to be replaced with United Nations trusteeship over Palestine, which would emerge as a possibility in 1948, just before the establishment of the state. Even after the partition plan was voted on, uh, I don't know, some of you might be old enough to remember that in March of 1948, Ambassador Warren Austin of the United States got up in the Security Council and said that the U.S. favors trusteeship. And Harry Truman had a, almost had a heart attack when he heard that. He had to call New York and say, what are you doing? We don't favor trusteeship. We favor partition from November 29 resolution and statehood for the two parties. Um, but Einstein favored not a binational state, not a Jewish state next door to an Arab state, but he favored United Nations trusteeship so that it could allow for uh, a peaceful environment in which more Jews could immigrate. Okay. Now, in the course of the, uh, the discussion, Einstein claimed that the situation would not get all that violent, that it won't lead to a shooting war. Of course, he was dead wrong. But he, in his naivete, believed that the situation between the two peoples was not all that bad, that the politicians were ruining it, and if you left the people to their own devices, it wouldn't result in a shooting war. Then, Judge Hatch- Hutchison... Uh, who was a member of the committee, made the following remark. He said, Dr. Einstein, many years ago I undertook to make a speech on relativity. 
I'm not sure that I had a much better scientific and general acquaintance with relativity than perhaps you have with all these general Palestine problems. But I have my view on relativity, and you have yours on Palestine. In other words, you don't know what, you, what the hell you're talking about. That's, okay. Um, okay. After the state was established in uh, May of 48, what is Einstein's attitude towards the state of Israel? Well, he feels it's a fait accompli. He openly acknowledges that he was never in favor of a state with army and borders, that he was in favor of the building up of the population and the building up of the infrastructure and the building up of intellectual life. He had never been in favor of an actual state with an army and borders. In this respect, he was a cultural Zionist along the lines of Achad Ha'am. Except, except, and here's the, here's the kicker. Most of the cultural Zionists were actual cultural Zionists in that their culture was Hebrew, was suffused with Jewish content, even if it wasn't old world religious content, at least it was clearly Jewish content. Einstein was a cultural Zionist whose culture was totally devoid of Jewishness. So what was he then? He wasn't a political Zionist. He wasn't a conventional cultural Zionist. He simply was in favor of the building up of a presence of Jews in a utopian-style society in Eretz Yisrael that doesn't control its own destiny, but could uh, increase in size under the, under the watchful eye of the international community. That's basically what he wanted. So he's not a cultural Zionist like Achara'am in the sense of poetry and writings. He's, a English, he's an English-speaking or German-speaking uh, American-Swiss citizen who doesn't know the, the first thing about Hebrew. Okay. Yes. Yes. Okay. Now, in 1952, Chaim Weizmann died. Chaim Weizmann died at the age of 74, uh, 78, uh, after a long illness, and after having served for three and a half years as the symbolic, uh, ceremonial, powerless president of the state of Israel. So, who's going to be the next president? Now, in fact, it ends up being Yitzchak Ben-Svi, who serves from 1952 to 1963 and was a colleague of Ben-Gurion from the good old days, was a mapainik and uh, fit the, the, the profile of a president of the state. But Einstein was offered the job. Why? So David Ben-Gurion felt that they, they, owe, they either owed it to Einstein to make the offer or that it would look good for the state of Israel if they could make the offer, but not that they expected the offer to be accepted or that they really wanted it to be accepted. Why not? Because Einstein's Zionism was a wishy-washy Zionism, and everybody knew it. At least everybody in the inner circle knew it. In the wider world... Jews and even Gentiles in this country were led to believe that Einstein was a, an avowed Zionist, a sort of a patriotic Jew. Um, but those in, who needed to know understood clearly that he would not have been a good fit. He was going to move to Israel. No. So he wasn't going to give up Princeton and his life in you know, the, the high ranks of uh, science and academia in America. It wasn't realistic. He didn't speak Hebrew. He, didn't even re- he couldn't read Hebrew. Uh, it wasn't for him. He hadn't been there in 30 years. But he, he was very grateful for the offer. Very, very grateful. In 1952, in December, he had an interview that he gave to Muhammad Haikal. 
Who is Muhammad Haikal? You never heard of him. He was a, one of the most prominent journalists in the Arab world, uh, an Egyptian journalist who uh, covered all the major stories in the Arab world. Huh? Al Aram, uh, he might have, I don't know. So he, he visited Einstein in 1952 in December and asked for an interview. He thought he was going to get a 15-minute interview and be told, that, you know, get out the door after 15 minutes are over. Instead, he got an hour and a half and then a, a, a few correspondence after that. Why? Einstein had something he wanted to show Heichel. He showed him the telegram about the invitation to be president of the State of Israel before it was public knowledge and explained to him, I can't accept it. Then he composed a message for Heichel to send to the president of Egypt. Who's the president of Egypt? So in 1952, the Free Officer Corps overthrew King Farouk. Farouk just barely escaped with his life on a boat to Italy, where he died a few years later of obesity. A young man. He's a horrible man, by the way, King Farouk. Um, who was the president? Well, the leader of the Free Officer Corps was General Naguib who very quickly after his rise to power was overthrown by Gamal Abdul Nasser. And Heichel said to Einstein, the guy who you really need to contact is Gamal Abdul Nasser. And throughout their hour-long conversation, Einstein couldn't remember the name Nasser, Gamal Abdul Nasser. He says, in my age, I forget names. That doesn't come so easily. And they had to slowly, Gamal Abdul Nasser. He taught him the name. And the message was an, an offer to be an intermediary for peace negotiations between Israel and, and Egypt, or Israel and the Arab world. Now, could Einstein really have served in that capacity? Uh, probably not. But, ever the, this, uh, the naive optimist, he, he presented the offer. There was no answer. Heichel brought it to Nasser. No answer. Why not? So aside from the fact that it may be he wasn't interested in responding, there's another factor in play. Right at that time was the Lavon Affair. Uh, we've in the past spoken about the Lavon Affair, uh, an attempt by rogue, maybe rogue or maybe not so rogue, elements within uh, the Israeli uh, spy community and the Egyptian Jewish community to blow up targets in Cairo and Alexandria so as to drive a wedge between Egypt and the Western powers. And uh, this way, Israel would not have to worry about a sort of a cozying of the relationship between their primary enemies <coughs> and the West, as they are trying to develop relationships with the West. And so, at a time of the Lavon affair, where things are blown, you know, packages are being blown up on the streets of Egypt, it wasn't an, uh, an opportune moment for Nasser to respond to an overture by Einstein to make peace. Okay. In the later years of his life. Uh, Einstein's other Jewish connection was to uh, Yeshiva University. He had a nice re relationship with Dr. Belkin and was involved in the raising of money for the Yeshiva University Medical School, which would eventually carry his name, the Albert Einstein College of Medicine, which unfortunately today is no longer part of Yeshiva University. It's now owned by, uh, under and operated by Montefiore, whom we'll speak about in a few weeks from now. Um, but it, it, it was fit, it fit with Einstein's career that what is Judaism? Social justice and intellectualism. 
And where do you put the two together? In a medical school, in a scientific research place which will heal, will heal people and cure diseases. So to him, that was his tzedakah, his philanthropy. No, not at all. But it, but but he's happy to see that parochial Jews are involved in something like a medical school and not exclusively involved in their parochialism, like Talmud study. Okay. Um, okay. Now, when Einstein uh, met, well, throughout his career, his public career as a Zionist, Einstein had decent relations with the general Zionists. And he had warm feelings towards socialist Zionists. But he had absolute disdain for revisionist Zionism. Right-wing Zionism, in his eyes, was the worst kind of chauvinist uh, expression of uh, Jewish identity. And he felt that Menachem Begin was a terrorist was a Nazi, like a fascist. And in this December of 1948, Menachem Begin came to the United States on a mission to boost support for the Khairut party, which was running in the first Israeli Knesset elections, which was scheduled for a month later in January 49. And if you remember from some of our lectures about Peter Bergson and Hillel Cook, uh, there was a strong revisionist sentiment in the United States, especially in New York. Okay? So he received a warm welcome, Menachem Begin. But there were many Jewish intellectuals who wrote a letter to the New York Times condemning his arrival and saying that American public officials and Jewish communal officials should have nothing to do with this guy, that he's bad, bad news all around. And there were repeated attempts by former members of the Irgun and Lehi after the War of 48 once the underground is no longer underground, and these are you know, above-ground people who are right-wing politicians, to re-engage with Einstein and ask him, you know, why are you so against us? What, what, what did we do that was so terrible? And he, he, wouldn't, um, he wouldn't touch the subject. As far as he was concerned, revisionist Zionism was like fascism. In his meeting with Heichel, the Arab journalist, he said Begin was like a Nazi. And then Heichel said, yeah, and Ben-Gurion's also like a Nazi. And, and then Einstein said, no, 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 that far I won't agree. Ben-Gurion wasn't a Nazi. So his, his Zionism was to the extent of Ben-Gurion wasn't a Nazi. That, that, Did you that, say that he was a brilliant scientist, but a, a somewhat naive politician? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, now when he died, when he died in 1955, at the age of 76, um, and by the way, he, he, he didn't believe in an afterlife. He believed his, you only live once, and once was more than enough. And, and when he was sick, he didn't want to have a, uh, a, a extraordinary measures taken to preserve his life. He wanted to, to die when it, when it was his time. When he died, right away, the obituaries, both in the general American press and certainly in the Jewish press, um, said how big of a Zionist he was and that he was a strong supporter of the state of Israel, despite the fact that that wasn't really true. He was a m- m- lukewarm supporter of the state of Israel and a believer in a certain strain of limited Zionism. But the, the writings in the, in, in, the, in the papers after he died gave a certain impression that the Jews wanted to be true. It wasn't actually true, but it was better for us. To, get, to make it seem as though 
Albert Einstein, the, the, the most genius person of the 20th century, was a staunch supporter of Jewish nationalism in the state of Israel. Yes, in the New York Times, yes, yes. So, wh- why did this happen? Fake news. Fake news, all right. But, but, but fake news that ended up being uh, preserved and sustained and is now the normative uh, narrative. So, in, a, in, in 2008, this book came out, Einstein on Israel and Zionism, uh, by Fred Jerome. And uh, the back cover tells you all you need to know about the, character, about the character of the author and the political bent of the author. Okay, one uh, little snippet is by Avraham Berg, the former um, speaker of the Israeli Knesset. His father was, was Yosef Berg, and who himself became a founder of Peace Now, and like is a renegade, is a, like a, almost a mishumid. He, he's, he's, not, he's not much of a Jew anymore. No, 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 wrong Berg. Okay, so he's, a, as far as Zionism is concerned, he, Avram Berg is the enemy. Okay, another one uh, is Michael Palumbo, who was the author of The Palestinian Catastrophe and Imperial Israel. Now, the title alone, Imperial Israel, t- t- tells you, all right, all you need to know. And the last one is from Adam Horowitz, the founder of Mondo Weiss. What's Mondo Weiss? It's, one of, it's a website that is supposedly a Jewish website, but the most virulently anti-Israel website you'll ever find outside of the Arab world. Okay, so this book has an agenda to show that the, the conventional wisdom about Einstein's Zionism was wrong. And as much as I might dislike the author and dislike the agenda of the book, he does a pretty good job of, from Einstein's own writings, explaining how the conventional narrative is off base, and that Einstein, in fact, was only a moderate or fair-weather Zionist. Um, so how did they come up with the idea that he was such a... Okay, so if, 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 you com- if you put together his support for Hebrew University, his speeches at various Zionist gatherings, his writings in Zionist publications, his um, <coughs> testimony at various uh, uh, committees and the offer presented by the State of Israel to give him the presidency, if you knew all that and didn't know some of his criticisms of Jewish nationalism and his belief in the, you know, the just cause of the Palestinian Arabs, you might think that the conventional wisdom was right. Yeah. But there is a balanced picture that needs to be uh, drawn here. It's not just totally one-sided, which goes to show you that the offer of the presidency was brilliant. Ben-Gurion knew it was going to be rejected. He knew it was totally inappropriate. It didn't fit. But the fact that it even happened can be spoken about for decades to say that the cause of Zionism was supported by the most brilliant people who ever lived. So, So as political strategy, the offer of the presidency was brilliant. Even if tachlis, it was a stupidity. Okay, we'll stop here.